to our passage today. You have this unique uh, title for a sermon, The Prophet's Christmas Hymn. Uh, Seeing that we're uh, about 600 years before Christmas happened, um, this will be unique. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 30. We're going to read the whole chapter in the first verse of chapter 31. And as always, listen carefully as this is the word of the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I have scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you, they care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you. And your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. 
Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord? And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath is gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and it is a hard word, and it is a hard-to-understand word, and yet we need it, as we always do. We need to know that everything we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that confronts our fears and yet gives us hope, that promises healing from our spiritual captivity, that promises to bring us home from our exile far from God. And therefore, Lord, help us to hear it and to understand it and to believe it and to obey it. And by it, may you change us and draw us close. Speak to us through your word this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it must be the beginning of spring break because it appears about half the church is gone. I don't know where they are, but we should pray that they come back. So we're going to do something a little different today. I know it's Palm Sunday. I was waiting for John to introduce it as Palm A Sunday. Um, it's a remarkable coincidence that he's the worship leader on this day almost every year. I forgot one year, and everybody said, what's going on? Why, John's not up there. What are you doing? I was like, I just forgot. Um, but either way, today, Palm Sunday or Palm A Sunday or whatever Sunday you want to call it, we're going to talk about Christmas because that just makes so much sense. And it's surprising how rarely Jeremiah is preached at Christmas. It's not that we preachers ignore the Old Testament. Isaiah gets plenty of airtime. For example, back in 2016, we did an Advent series on Christmas with Isaiah. We looked at such familiar texts as Isaiah 7:14, "Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel." We looked at Isaiah 9:6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You can almost hear Handel's Messiah uh, coming forth. By the way, that was actually written as an Easter hymn, not a Christmas hymn. Just a little trivia there. Um, but even the minor prophets like Micah uh, come into their own in December in 2017, we did an Advent series on Christmas with the Minor Prophets. We looked at familiar texts like Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler 
and Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, nothing against Isaiah or Micah, but it's unfortunate that Jeremiah's teaching about the Messiah remains so unfamiliar. <coughs> All of which led me to the, <coughs> excuse me, I have a throat lozenge in and I just choked on it. <coughs> so, of course I put it in there so I wouldn't choke. Anyway, all this led me to the classic hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It is probably the oldest Christmas carol still sung today. This hymn dates back to the ninth century and presents the different biblical roles fulfilled by Jesus. It was originally written in Latin and was only sung at sort of high mass in the Catholic Church. And then in the 1800s, there was a very progressive evangelical Anglican who uh, kind of upset the Anglican hierarchy, so they sent him to a church on a little island off of Africa where he had like 22 parishioners, and they paid him 27 pounds a year. And he d decided he had all sorts of time, and so he discovered all old hymns and basically put them to new music and updated the words and translated them from the Latin. And so many of our hymns uh, come from him, John Mason Neal. And he did that with this hymn. He's not the original author, he's the translator and the updater. The author is unknown, is commonly thought to be a, a monk from right around 800 AD. And, uh, but apparently he possessed a rich knowledge of both the Old and New Testaments. The words paint this beautiful illustration of all the biblical prophecies fulfilled by the birth of Christ. So the story of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is a study in the biblical view of the Messiah, who he was, what he represented, and why he came. And so this hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is a notable example of how the Old and New Testament views of Messiah are all coming together and joined together in the birth and life of Jesus Christ. And because it brings the story of Christ to life, it ranks as one of the most important songs in the history of Christianity. Now, the first verse of the song is taken from Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1, and it introduces Emmanuel, God with us. And yet the familiar words could easily be placed in Jeremiah, and particularly in chapter 30, our text for today, where the people have been sent off into exile. Now there's seven stanzas to this hymn, and there are multiple versions of each stanza. So there's like 21 different versions of this song. Um, so I've sort of picked uh, three uh, stanzas, um, the ones that fit the text the best. And uh, so starting with the first verse, if you remember uh, this hymn, uh, we gather at Christmas and we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And the haunting melody of this hymn is also of ancient origin. It's based on one of the earliest forms of sacred music called plain song, 
more commonly known as chant. It's sad and slow and brooding, much like any other song of the exile, like by the rivers of Babylon from Psalm 137. It is a musical lament. However, in the midst of this lament, there's hope. And that brings us back to our text for today, Jeremiah 30, where we see the hope of Emmanuel. The hope of Emmanuel. And uh, so we'll be starting there at verse 1. There are lots of hard things written in this chapter, but tucked away here and there are some great promises of God, promises much like this Christmas carol that are filled with hope. Now, most of Jeremiah's messianic prophecies come in chapters 30 through 33. These chapters are filled with such hope, they're sometimes called the book of consolation. One commentator identified them as the grand hymn of Israel's deliverance. And the consolation begins with the promise that the Messiah will ransom his people from exile, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. So as we read the text, I want you to listen for the promises. There's lots of hard things. There are lots of things that are hard to understand at first. But tucked away are some promises. Listen for the promises. Starting again at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Concerning Israel and Judah, thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Which would certainly bring out a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet... He shall be saved out of it, and it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity." Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I have scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. This is a reminder of something Jeremiah's people could not forget. They were captives living as exiles in Babylon. And the Lord gave this word to Jeremiah not long after Je King uh, Jehoiakim and his officials were dragged off to Babylon in 597 B.C. 
the wounds of captivity are fresh. And throughout this passage, there are hints of how greatly God's people suffered at the hands of their enemies. What was captivity like for God's people? Captivity, of course, meant slavery. Jeremiah describes the yoke that hung around the necks of God's people. They had been enslaved to foreigners, verse 8. He referred to the land of their captivity, verse 10. And so captivity means misery, which he portrays in the most vivid terms, starting at verse 4. Actually, I'm going to pick up at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, we've heard a cry of panic, of terror, and of no peace. Ask now and see Can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? The scenes of battle are fresh in Jeremiah's mind. Nebuchadnezzar has just conquered and ransacked and destroyed Jerusalem. There are bodies as far as the eye can see. And you can still hear the desperate cries of the vanquished. He can see warriors clutching their stomachs in agony, their faces turning pale like women in the throes of childbirth. And yet for all their pain, they deliver nothing but misery. Now, captivity also means anxiety. God told his people to fear not, nor be dismayed, verse 10, which meant, of course, they were both afraid and dismayed. They're afraid of Babylon. They're afraid of slavery. They're afraid of suffering. They're afraid of being separated from their loved ones. They're afraid of death. And truth be told, we're afraid of the very same things. Politics, sin, suffering, criticism, loneliness, disagreement, death, each of them can bind us in misery, anxiety, and fear. And what we need is a savior. We need someone to deliver us from bondage, which is exactly what the people of Israel need. They need someone to ransom them from their captivity to Babylon. And the end of captivity is what Jeremiah 30 promises. Verse 3, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers and they shall take possession of it. Again and again, God promises to save them. End of verse seven. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Middle of verse 10, I will save you from far away. Beginning of verse 11, I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. And history shows that God saved his people the way he promised. He gathered them from Babylon and all the northern lands and brought them back to Jerusalem. Their exile lasted 70 years, and then it was over, and they came home to their land. Jeremiah's promise meant salvation for Israel, but I think not just for Israel, because there are clues he's promising something much bigger than the end of the Babylonian captivity. Throughout this God-given dream of things to come, The language and landscape are those of Jeremiah's day, dominated by the theme of exile and restoration. Nevertheless, there is a far greater ingathering of people that's foretold. And the covenant with Israel and Judah would, in this event, embrace 
the worldwide sons of the living God, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, Jeremiah is among the first to bring news of a coming Messiah uh, who is, according to Luke chapter 2, for all the people. And to begin with, Jeremiah introduces his prophecy with this favorite messianic phrase, the days are coming, verse 3. And he's talking about this unprecedented day, verse 7, the day is so great, there is none like it. And the day Jeremiah envisioned would leave us awestruck. It would bring deliverance not only for Jeremiah's people, but for their descendants. Verse 10, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. It will bring deliverance not just for a time, but forever. And not just from uh, foreign powers, uh, from all foreign powers, and not just from Babylon. Verse 8 says, I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. So Jeremiah is bringing them great hope of the coming Messiah. But they still live in the here and now. They're still exiles in Babylon. They're still suffering in slavery. And despite this great promise of hope, things still look bleak and dark and gloomy. And so it's time to return to our great hymn, where the second verse presents the image of Luke 1, verse 78, which says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. In the King James Version, that's translated through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. And Luke is referring back to Malachi chapter 4. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And so we sing, O come, thou day spring from on high. Taken straight from the King James Version, Luke 1. And cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Which all sounds so good. And something we want. We want to disperse the bleakness and the gloom of night and the darkness of death. We need what the day spring from on high promises. We need the healing of Emmanuel. Verse 12, the healing of Emmanuel. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. As I said, captivity meant slavery 
and misery and anxiety. It also means the loss of identity. The people of God were alone in the world. They felt rejected, and in fact, they were rejected. First of all, by their enemies, the very end of verse 17. They have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. And this shouldn't be that surprising. You can't expect to be loved by your enemies. And yet the people of Israel are also rejected by their allies, which is more devastating, beginning verse 14. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. When the days of trouble came and the Babylonians were on the march, marching on Jerusalem, Jerusalem tried to make unholy alliances with pagan kings. Instead of trusting the Lord, back in chapter 27, the Jews invited Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon to make treaties of war with them. And their trust was misplaced. Jeremiah essentially accuses them of looking for love in all the wrong places. He doesn't say here that all your allies have forgotten you. He says, all your lovers have forgotten you. Because turning to pagan kings for safety is a way of committing spiritual adultery. And in the end, their lovers would abandon them, and they'd be left completely alone, and no one would care what happened to them. Slavery, misery, anxiety, loss of identity. Those are actually common experiences. We can't trivialize the suffering of the exiles. And yet there's times when we too are miserable and anxious. There's all kinds of misery. There's physical suffering, family strife, unfulfilled desires, shattered expectations, just the daily drudgery of life, abject failures. And then we're anxious, uncertain about what the future may bring, and we worry and wonder about job security or how our children are turning out or whether we have enough money for retirement. And then like the exiles in Babylon, we feel alone in the world. We've lost people we love the most or we never had them in the first place. Our families oppose our faith, have little in common with our coworkers, and at times we feel so forsaken and rejected, even in the church, that we wonder, is there any place that we belong? Those are hard times for people. And there's a reason we're sometimes held captive by all of these emotions. It's the same reason the exiles were held captive in Babylon. Idolatry, iniquity, and sin. Most of all, captivity means bondage to sin, slavery to sin, both our own sins and the sins of others. And this is how God explained the exile, going back to verse 14. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. God's actions are just. If he turned against his people, it was because of their sin. They'd been sent to Babylon, not because God is weak, unloving, or spiteful, but because they're sinners. All their misery, anxiety, loss of identity came out of their captivity, not to the Babylonians, but their captivity to their own sin. Bondage to sin is the greatest of all captivities. 
Sin will not be satisfied until it achieves total dominance in your life. It seizes the mind to think sinful thoughts. It grabs the body to perform wicked deeds. It poisons the imagination to crave unholy thoughts. It bends the will to its own design. And in the end, it steals the heart so that the sinner loves what is evil and hates what is good. And notice how captive God's people were to sin. It says their sins were great. Their sins were flagrant. God is reminding his people that they're great sinners. And instead of being filled uh, with self-pity, they should have been filled with self-accusation. And the reason they're so miserable is because they're such flagrant sinners. And of course, it raises the question, do we believe that about ourselves? Do you admit that you're a sinner who deserves the wrath and curse of God? Now, if you've joined the church, you've admitted it at least once. Because the first membership question is, do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope save in his sovereign mercy? And if you're a member, you said yes to that. You will never become a growing Christian until you're able to confess that your guilt is great and your sins are many. You have to know the sinfulness of sin before you can really appreciate the graciousness of God's grace. The sinfulness of sin is a problem so serious that apparently nothing could be done about it. Jeremiah describes it in medical terms. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause. No medicine for your wound, no healing for you. How's that for bedside manner? Pretty tactless, actually. He comes right out and says, your spiritual condition is terminal. And Jeremiah has brought up the idea of an incurable wound before. All the way back in chapter 8, he said, is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician here? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? So much for the prognosis here. But what about the diagnosis? What mortal wound, what infectious disease has laid the people of God on their deathbed? And the answer, of course, is sin. Verse 15. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great. Your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. And we, too, suffer from this incurable malady. You, too, are in captivity to iniquity. You, too, have a bad case of sin. And you, too, will not or cannot recover on your own. It takes more than a couple days in bed and a few bowls of chicken soup to get you back on your feet. And apart from the grace of God, sin is an incurable disease. The general confession from the Book of Common Prayer, the older one, which is actually very well written and very biblical, it says, this is the general confession. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. That haunting statement expresses what Jeremiah meant when he said that Israel's wound was incurable. If sin is within me, how can I escape it? Sin is such a part of us that we can't get rid of it, but God can He's the great 
physician, as Jeremiah promised, verse 17, for I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah has now made two statements that seem incompatible. First, God says a wound is incurable, and then he promises to cure it. Second, he declares an injury that can't be healed, and then he vows to heal it. God promises to do the impossible. He promises to cure what's incurable and to heal what's beyond healing. And the promise of healing is a promise to make new flesh grow over an old wound. Just imagine with me for a moment if skin cells didn't have the power to regenerate. Imagine if wounds never healed. Imagine how hideous we would look if every cut, scrape, bruise, or blemish was permanent. Then imagine how hideous a soul looks in which sin has been allowed to fester untouched by the grace of God. Imagine idolatry added to immorality compounded by selfishness and ungodliness. And if you could look inside your own soul, you would see a malignant evil. Who can heal such a spiritual cancer? Only God. And only through the death of his son on the cross, there's only one cure for iniquity, only one remedy for guilt, only one atonement for sin, and that is the blood of Christ shed on the cross. We ourselves cannot overcome evil on our own, but Christ has won the victory over sin through his death and resurrection. The work of Christ on the cross was done to cure the incurable wound of sin. Do you believe that? The exiles did. The exiles in Babylon believed it. They're waiting, hoping, longing for their Messiah to come. They prayed that he would deliver them from all the misery of their captivity. And we look to the same Messiah to ransom us from our bondage to sin. We believe that he's come, and we have hope that he'll come again. And for that, we return to our great hymn, where the third verse presents the image from Isaiah 22, verse 22, where it says, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so shall he open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And so we sing, come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. The words in this verse explain that the newborn king holds the key to the heavenly kingdom and he's the one who makes it possible to get there and he's the one who closes the door on indwelling sin which leads to misery. He is the one who leads us to the home of Emmanuel. The home of Emmanuel, verses 18, to the end. I'm just gonna read a few of these verses starting at verse 18. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. And then verse 21, 
Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out of their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And then at the very end, in the latter days, you will understand this at that time, declares the Lord. I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. So all the way back in verse 9, Jeremiah made a promise about the house and line of David. Back there it said, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for him, for them. Now we are approximately 400 years after the time of David. And yet he's made a promise for they'll serve David their king, whom I will raise up for them. He's made this promise before. Back in Jeremiah 23, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now this prophecy of the coming king, the son of David, wasn't fulfilled at the end of the exile. Under the leadership of Nehemiah, Jerusalem's rebuilt. But no king was put back on the throne by God. The kings of Jesus' time were installed by the Romans, but not ordained by God. And therefore, Jeremiah's promises aren't fulfilled until the coming of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth was born a king, a true son of David. That's why the Gospels place so much emphasis on his genealogy. Even to qualify as a candidate for Messiah, he had to be a direct descendant of King David. And so he was. And Jesus is the king God promised to raise up for his people. And Jeremiah's prophecy uh, even seemed to him the coming king would be God himself. Well, the Savior comes, this Messiah, this king, God's people shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. And serving God and serving David are placed in parallel. To serve David is to be a servant of God and to serve God is to be a servant of God. And it's easy to see how the coming of Christ makes sense of this verse. He is the promised son of David. He is also the son of God. He is God as well as man. All this shows that Jeremiah is waiting for the Messiah. And when the king finally came, what would he do? What kind of Messiah would, uh, did Jeremiah promise? Well, he promises the Messiah is to be a liberator. He would ransom the people from captivity. The Messiah would be a peacemaker. We've already seen the captives are afraid and dismayed. And when they, he comes, when the Messiah comes, they'll have lasting peace. And then Jeremiah promised the Messiah would be God with us. Back at the end of verse 11, for I am with you to save you. Jeremiah has piled one messianic promise on top of another. It's the same promise Isaiah made. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And to know that God is with us has been the greatest comfort to believers throughout all ages. It's a comfort to Jeremiah when he first got called to the ministry. God told him the whole land would oppose him, but it promised him, Jeremiah 119, 
They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. The promise of God with us is a comfort to Mary and Joseph at the manger. It's the meaning of the first Christmas. Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. When Jesus was born at Bethlehem, God became man. Jesus of Nazareth was God as well as man, fully man, fully God, entered into our humanity, becoming like us in every way, yet without sin. It's the mystery of the incarnation. God with us. Jesus came to be one of us, with us. And so that's our comfort too, because God is still with us. Before Jesus ascended to his Father in heaven, he made one last promise to his disciples. The end of Matthew 28, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus meant that he would remain with us through uh, his Holy Spirit. Jesus is often considered God's Christmas gift to humanity. And now that God has come to be with us, we have salvation, freedom, peace, comfort, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And most of all, we're given the promise of being home with Emmanuel. Jeremiah promised a Messiah to build the city, a ruler who would arise from his own people and come close to the heart of God. And Jesus is that Messiah. And he's doing that work for one great purpose. Verse 22, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. My people, your God. This is what God has promised his people uh, throughout the scriptures. It's the promise he made to Abraham, which we read when we do baptisms. Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's the promise God made under Moses, Exodus 6. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. It's the promise he repeated in early in the ministry of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7. But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. This is God's promise of the covenant. It contains everything that you've longed for and everything that you could hope for. God will be your God and you will belong to him. And everything you could ever need is wrapped up in that one promise. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament scholar, says this covenant promise has the radical simplicity of a marriage vow. In this promise, God is betrothing himself to his people in marital fidelity, saying you belong to me and I belong to you forever. And that is why every single verse of our great hymn ends with the same chorus. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Those are words of hope, and those are words of healing, and those are the words that will bring us home. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close, and then we'll sing those words. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes, 
open our minds and our hearts that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we are far too often held in bondage to sin. We wallow in our misery and anxiety rather than draw near to you for comfort and peace. Give us a greater desire to know you and to know your word, to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation of our lives, good or bad, and to believe that it comes from your hand. Forgive us from our lack, for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our fears. Forgive us for being consumed by our anxiety. Work in each of us. Continue to work in each of us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, and an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises, all of which are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And through these things, draw us ever closer to him, your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's blessing from the prophet Ezekiel, who says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. <coughs> they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God bless you. We'll see you on Easter.